Hello, my name is Dwayne Spearman. Welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. We're going to pick up our study today in Daniel chapter number 6. In Daniel chapter number 6. Last time we got through verse number 9, so just for a bit of context, uh, we're going to go ahead and just read uh, verses six, uh, verses 1 through 9, just for the context. And it pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was the first, and the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents, the princesses, the princes, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought to set him over the whole realm. Then the presidents and the princes found occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion or fault. For as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Then said these men, We shall not find any occasion against Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of the, his God. And these presidents and princesses, princes, I don't know why I'm having a problem pronouncing that, and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto the king, King Darius, live forever. And all the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes and the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days, save the king, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. So this is where we left off last time. Uh, these guys were obviously jealous of Daniel, and they were trying to find a way to trap Daniel. They're trying to find a fault in Daniel. They couldn't find one, so they had to invent one. Now notice we're going to pick up in verse number 10 today. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. In other words, Daniel didn't change anything. No fear there. Daniel had to have known what they were doing. But clearly, he showed no fear. Now, bear in mind that Daniel was an elderly man by this time. Daniel knew from whence came his favor. It's been said that the best way to stop knocking knees is to kneel. That is just exactly what Daniel did. Now, Daniel no doubt knew of the prayer of dedication that Solomon had made when the temple was first built. In 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse number 30, um, King, uh, it says, And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place. And that's what Daniel was doing. And hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place, and when thou hearest, forgive. Also in 1 Kings chapter 8 verse 38, What prayer and supplication soever be made by any man, or by all thy people Israel, 
which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward this house. Now, this is exactly what Daniel was doing. He did this three times per day, and he was doing it toward the house of God in Jerusalem. Now, I don't think that that means that those were the only times that Daniel prayed. But those were three times that he apparently went to his chamber and prayed toward Jerusalem, just as King Solomon had stated in 1 Kings chapter number 8. Now, another thing Daniel might have, why three times a day? Well, Psalm 55, verses 16 through 17 says, As for me, I will call upon God, and the Lord shall save me evening, morning, and noon. And I, will I pray and cry aloud, and he shall hear my voice. So we see there in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went to his house and his windows being opened in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. In other words, nothing changed. Daniel knew what they were up to but nothing changed. Now notice in verse number 11, 11 through 16. Now these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before his God. Naturally, they knew that. Then they came near and spake before the king um, concerning the king's decree. Hast thou not signed a decree that every man shall that shall ask a petition of any god or man within thirty days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said, unto the, said before the king, That Daniel, notice, that Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee. I can imagine how many times these guys said, That Daniel. They obviously despised him. O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. In other words, Daniel is, is ignoring your law. Then the king, when he heard these words, was sore displeased with himself and set his heart on Daniel to deliver him and labored till the going down of the sun to deliver him. Then these men assembled unto the king and said unto the king. So the whole day, the king is trying to think of a way to get Daniel out of this. But as the sun is beginning to sit, okay, he's not able to come up with come up with anything. Then these men assembled before the king and said unto the king, Know, O king, that the law of the Medes and the Persians is that no decree in our statute with the king establisheth may be changed. Then the king commanded, and they brought Daniel and cast him into the lion's den. Now the king spake and said unto Daniel, Thy God, whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. Now, there is no doubt at this point that the king realized that he had been had. These guys had appealed to his pride and set him up. And unbeknownst to them, they had sealed their own fate. Thus, he immediately goes about trying to get Daniel off the hook, but to no avail. He was bound by the very law that he himself had made by his signature. 
Now notice his final comment to Daniel, thy God whom thou servest continually, he will deliver thee. I cannot help but think that, that this was more wishful thinking than anything on, on, on the king's part. I mean, after all, like most of us, he spent his entire day trying to figure out another way to deliver Daniel. Again, sounds like a lot of Christians that I know. <laughs> Sometimes me as well. I have to admit that. Many times God becomes the last resort. May that never be so in our lives. We need to go to God first. God is option A, period. God's option A, God's option B, God's option C. It's God. Now, that doesn't mean God isn't going to tell us to do something. He's not going to move us to do something. But we need to go to him first. And notice in verse 17, And the stone was brought and laid upon the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lords, that the purpose might not be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and passed, passed the night fasting. Neither were instruments... Um, brought before him, and his sleep went from him. Then the king arose very early in the morning and went in haste to the den of lions. And when he came to the den, he cried with a lamentable voice unto Daniel. And the king spake and said to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, is thy God, whom thou servest, continually able to deliver thee from the lions? In other words, the God that you serve, not necessarily me. Then said Daniel unto the king, O king, live forever. My God hath sent his angel and hath shut the lion's mouths, and they have not hurt me. For as much as before him innocency was found in me, and also before thee, O king, I have done no hurt. Then was the king exceedingly glad for him, and commanded that they should take Daniel out of the den. So Daniel was taken out of the den, and no manner of hurt was found upon him, because he believed in his God. Notice that. Notice Daniel's cool response. He simply honored the king. But this was true honor. Not the old king live forever trick that the, that the knuckleheads had done to get Daniel in this situation. This was a true honor for the king. And notice that Daniel says that God hath sent his angels and hath shut the lion's mouths. God has done this. He came and he shut the angel's mouths, or the, the, the lion's mouths. Now, who was this angel? Now, I believe that he was the exact same angel that was in the burning fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the previous chapters. Jesus Christ himself. Remember that when Christ appears in the Old Testament, it is called a pre-incarnate appearance. Christ's birth in Jerusalem is called the Incarnation. So when you say pre-incarnation, so before the Incarnation, this was a, an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Now remember that in chapter 3, when the three Hebrew children were cast into the burning fiery furnace, we were asking, where was Daniel? Now here in chapter 6, we're asking, where's Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego? Well, I could make up something for you, but I don't know. We don't know. I look at it this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their chance to stand up for God in chapter 3, and Daniel has his chance here in chapter number 6. And guess what? I believe that we'll get that chance someday as well, if not already. We all have to stand up for the Lord. 
And then notice in verse number 24, And the king commanded, and they brought those men which had accused Daniel. Uh-oh. And they cast them into the den of lions, them, their children, their wives. And the lions had mastery of them and break all their bones before they even hit the bottom of the den. Now, there are a few things that I can glean from these verses. First, the king probably had their entire families thrown into the den of lions out of fear of retribution. In other words, if you, if you leave them alive, he's going to have enemies for the rest of his life. So he just nipped it. Like old Barney Fife says, nip it, nip it, nip it, nipped it in the blood, in the bud. Second, it was an oriental custom of the day that the entire family pays for the crime of the father. Everybody's guilty. And then thirdly, a spiritual application. Our sins affect our entire family, not just us alone. My friend, when you go down a road in this life, you don't go down that road by yourself. You're taking your friends, you're taking your family, you're taking people who care about you down that road with you. We need to remember that when we start to do things like that, when we start, when we start looking at that detour. We're going to take people with us. We're going to drag people with us. Not only are we going to be hurting ourselves, but we're going to be hurting people that are closest and dearest to us, those people who love us. They're going to go down that road as well. We need not be so selfish, and we need to remember that. Now, notice in verse 25, Then King Darius wrote unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. So he's pulling a Nebuchadnezzar here. Peace be multiplied unto you. I make a decree that in every dominion of my kingdom men tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and steadfast forever in his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. And his dominion shall be even unto the end. He delivereth and rescueth. He worketh signs and wonders in the heavens and in earth. Who hath delivered Daniel from the power of the lions? So this Daniel prospered in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Well, the king was certainly impressed with Daniel and especially Daniel's deliverance. However, there's still no indication from this that the king placed the God of Daniel over the gods of the Medo-Persians. Only God knows what kind of life transformation might have occurred at this point in King Darius's life, just like in King Nebuchadnezzar's. But either way, God certainly used this situation to bring future blessings upon Daniel for his faithfulness. Now look in chapter number 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, King of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head upon his bed. Then he wrote the dreams and told the sum of the matters. Now, just a little bit here for a bit of an outline. Chapter 7 through 12. Chapter 7 through 12 are visions which, which Daniel had. Not kings, but Daniel. In chronology... The events of chapters 7 and 8 that we're going to read here, these events in chapter 7 and in chapter 8, belong between chapters 4 and chapters 5. Okay, so that puts him back under Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. Now, what happens in chapter 9 happens about the same time as chapter number 6 
when he was under the Medo-Persians. And the visions of chapters 10 through 12 take place after chapter number 6, after the Medo-Persians. So as you're reading through this, you might get a little bit confused because, you know, in chapter number 6, he's talking to Darius, okay? And he's talking about Cyrus, the Medes and the Persians here. And then all of a sudden in chapter number 7, he's back with Belshazzar, you know, of the, of the Babylonians. Again, we just need to remember the outline here that's happening. The book is not necessarily written in chronological order. That's the same thing about the book of Revelation. People get confused about the book of Revelation because, they, I mean, it is written in chronological order, but you have to realize that there are what's called parenthetical chapters. A parenthetical chapter is kind of like what we're looking at right here when we go into chapter number seven. It's not in chronological order. It's a, you know, a parenthetical means an aside. In other words, in the book of Revelation, as John is speaking, like in chapter number 12, uh, he might detour for a little bit to focus on this woman. Okay, so he's not, so you can't, you, if you pulled out what's called the parenthetical chapters of Revelation, the, the book would be, in my opinion, completely in chronological order. But those parenthetical chapters throw people off. Same thing happening here. Daniel's going back into his visions, okay, and that's going to take him back into the Babylonian uh, kingdom when he was serving there. So the first four visions of chapters 7 through 12 are the most comprehensive. Okay, The other three visions all deal with aspects of the first vision. So as we're going through these, these visions tend to overlap. There's some overlappage, if you will. But notice what he says. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream in his visions. And obviously this was before the handwriting on the wall, you know, which is which when that evening King Belshazzar was slain. Obviously this is before that. And he has this dream upon his bed. And he wrote the dream and told the sum of the matters. That word, those words, sum of the matters, is Daniel was given more detail, but he didn't write about it in detail. But the Holy Spirit, I mean, obviously the Holy Spirit only wanted him to focus on the main facts. Though, you know, I would love to have more detail, but he just gave the sum of the matters. Okay. Um, and then notice in verse number two, Daniel spake and said, in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of the heaven strove upon the great sea, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. Now, notice it says the four winds of heaven. Now, some view these as representing the satanic, satanic forces. And, you know, in Revelation 7, 1, and after these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor upon the sea, nor upon any tree. Okay, um, well, number one, uh, I believe these four angels are working for God here in Revelation chapter seven, <laughs> verse number one. So I don't necessarily, I don't think they are representing necessarily satanic forces, but maybe they were holding back satanic forces, these angels of God in Revelation seven. They're holding back these satanic forces. Or some might say it's simply when it talks to these four winds, 
It's speaking about God's strength and, and power. And you can find this all throughout the book of Psalms. Let them be as chaff before the wind, and let the angel of the Lord chase them. So the terminology is used a lot. Thou breakest the ships of Tarshish with an east wind, and he commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind that lifts the waves. And in Isaiah, in measure when it shooteth forth, thou wilt debate with it. He stayed his rough wind all day in the day of the east wind. And then also in Isaiah 41, and thou shalt fan them and the wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You guys know the verse, he who sows to the wind will reap the whirlwind. Well, I mean, we're not exactly sure. We just know that in Daniel's dream, he sees the four winds of heaven, and these winds are striving upon the great sea. The great sea is referring to the Mediterranean Sea, that all of these empires that Daniel is going to talk about, and even has talked about, are around. All of these sea, all of these, these empires are around this great Mediterranean Sea. See, one commentator says, uh, to the Hebrews, the sea was both, both dangerous and it was mysterious. It was a restless element, but it was not beyond the power of God to tame. From this great sea, we're going to see that four great beasts are going to come, distinct one from the other. Uh, Strauss is going to, we're going to see a lion, we're going to see a bear, we're going to see a leopard, we're going to see a fourth beast. And Strauss says, the lion devours, the bear crushes, the leopard springs, you know. I mean, each of these animals are known as Daniel begins to interpret or to reveal his dream. Uh, these animals are known for certain types of prowess. And they're going to describe each of the kingdoms that they represent. Now, notice in verse number four, the first beast. The first beast was like a lion, had eagle's wings, and I beheld to the wings of thereof were plucked and it was lifted high from the earth and made to stand on its feet as a man and a man's heart was given to it now i have a little drawing here we see this first beast is like a lion and it had eagle's wings now the lion the lion that had eagle's wings the lion is majestic. It is the king of the beast. And it's represented, uh, the beast is majestic in that it repre it's represented by a lion and an eagle. So this first beast is like a lion, but it had eagle's wings. The lion is the king of the land as the eagle is the king of the air. Jeremiah used both of these to describe Babylon. In Jeremiah 49 and verse 19, behold, he said, he shall come up like a lion from the swelling of Jordan against the inhabitant habitation of the strong, but I will suddenly make him run away from her. And who is, who is, who is a chosen man that I may appoint over her for who is like me and who will appoint me the time and who is that shepherd that will stand before me? Therefore, hear the counsel of the Lord that he hath taken against Edom and his purposes that he hath purposed against the inhabitants of Teman. Surely the least of the flock will draw them out. Surely he will make their habitation desolate. 
The earth is moved with the noise of their fall, at the cry of the noise thereof was heard in the Red Sea. Behold, he shall come and fly as the eagle, and spread his wings over Basra, as that day shall the heart of mighty men of Edom be like the heart of a woman in her pang. So uh, Jeremiah speaks of Babylon in these terms. However, we see here that this his kingdom is humbled because his wings are plucked and given the heart of a man. Now, Babylon was known uh, for its uh, the winged lions. As a matter of fact, uh, I have a picture here that I can actually show you. See there? Uh, that's actually in the Louvre. Um, you see that 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 winged lion, which which represents Babylon, and of course we see his humiliation. And Babylon, as you remember, was the head of gold in the statue that King Nebuchadnezzar saw. And then we end up down in verse number five. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, and it raised itself on one side and it had three ribs in his mouth. And between the teeth of it, they said thus unto it, Arise and devour much flesh. So we see that second beast, a bear, and he's got these three ribs in his mouth. It's been said that the bear is much less majestic than the lion. It is slow, it is ponderous, it is crushing. This one is imbalanced in some way, in that it is on its side. However, it does have a ferocious appetite. And it represents the Medo-Persian empire. Many believe that the three ribs in its mouth represents the three empires that it conquered. Babylon, Egypt, and Lydia. So we see the second beast. And then the third beast uh, Daniel speaks of in verse number six. And after this I beheld and lo, another, like a leopard which had upon the back of its four wings of a fowl, the beast also had four heads and dominion was given unto it. So this beast we see as a leopard with four heads and four wings. The leopard represents Greece, just like in the statue that Daniel interpreted for King Nebuchadnezzar. And we see here, it speaks of the speed. I think the, 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 the leopard speaks to the, the speed of this kingdom, Greece. And if you understand Alexander and how fast he conquered the known world as at such a young age, a normal leopard, I looked this up, a normal leopard can run 36 miles per hour. And it's known for its sudden unexpected attacks. But this one even has four wings on its back. So it's even much more swift it's, and it's clever because it has four heads. Now, Alexander the Great had conquered the entire known world by the age of 28, young man. Now, some would say that the four heads represent his four generals. His generals upon his deathbed were Cassander, Lysimachus, Seleucus, and Ptolemy, and they inherited the empire after Alexander's unexpected pass, passing. And some people say this is what those four heads represent, those four generals that the Grecian Empire was given to after the death of Alexander.
Now notice in verse number 7, And after this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. It was dreadful. It was terrible. It was strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured, and it broke in pieces. It stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the other beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. <laughs> now notice that this fourth beast was different from all that was before it. I mean, look at that thing. You know, I realize that's an artistic rendering, but how do you draw that? I mean, I mean, it, it's dreadful. It's terrible. It's exceeding. It has great iron teeth. Uh, it devoured it, breaking. I mean, it's not a known animal. I mean, it's a fricazoid. I mean, what is it? I mean, it's different from the rest that came before it. It's diverse from all the beasts. There's no doubt, as we remember the statue with Nebuchadnezzar, first came the head of gold, which represented Babylon. Then came the Medes and the Persians, as we came down into the, to the silver and the chest. And then as we come down to the to the bronze or the brass, we came to the Grecian Empire. And then we come to the legs of iron, which represented the Roman Empire. So too, these beasts represent Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and now Rome. Rome ruled the, the, the entire known world from about 150 years before Christ until 450 years after the death of Christ. It was unquestionably the largest, the strongest, unified, and enduring empire of them all. Rome was unique in that it not only ruled the world physically, but it also came to rule the world spiritually with the birth of the Holy Roman Catholic Empire. So not only did it rule men physically, but it ruled men spiritually. In many respects, Rome never lost the spiritual control of the world. Let me explain that. This right here is a chart of world religions, 2015. Look at there. Christianity is still the largest uh, group in the world representing Christianity. Right behind them comes the Muslims. Behind them comes unaffiliated, Hindus, Buddhists, folk religions, other religions, and look at Jews, Judaism, 0.01%. And oh, what a mighty raucous they stir, the Jews. You know, it's just amazing. It's got to be demonically uh, induced. I mean, when people hate the Jews, they, they represent so few on this world that God has made. Uh, but notice that Christians is still the largest group. They are the biggest slice of the pie at 31.2%. But within Christianity, here's another chart. Guess which group is the largest? 48.87% of those who call themselves Christian are Catholic. So, like I said, in many respects... Rome has never lost spiritual control of the world. And I believe that's why those two legs are there. Political Rome, our physical Rome, political Rome, and spiritual Rome. Notice Catholics. And then behind Catholics, look where the other larger group is. Pentecostalism. 11.74% Pentecostal. 
And then I guess the next biggest group would be the non-denominational group. So very interesting. Some good charts there. So Rome, greatest world power ever known, and I believe in many respects still very much in control spiritually. This is seen in the fact that the iron does not cease to exist. You'll remember in Nebuchadnezzar's statue, it goes down to the feet. And what's in the feet? Iron. It's still there, even in the last world empire, which we have not even seen yet. I believe it's going to take shape. I don't know how it's going to take shape. It's another study for another day. It's amazing that God gave this revelation to Daniel around 600 years before Christ. That was almost 400 years before Rome even became a world empire. Imagine that. And notice it has 10 horns. The 10 toes of chapter 2, remember those? And now we have the 10 horns here in chapter 7. They're one and the same. The interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is the same as the interpretation of Daniel's dream. And these ten horns or these ten toes, they are one and the same. And they represent the revived Roman Empire, which we will see rise from the ashes one day. In other words, everything is going to shift back to Europe. That's not hard to believe, considering how we're destroying each other and everything we've ever believed here on this side of the pond. Um, it's not hard to believe that. You remember in Revelation 12, 1, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rise up out of the sea. It had seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns were ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. Also in Revelation uh, 17 and verse number 3, let me just highlight that for you. Etul's awesome. Etul, not Etul, Esword. <laughs> awesome. Revelation 17, 3. So he carried me away in the spirit in the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So while that beast represents Rome, here in Daniel, those ten toes or those ten horns represent revived Rome. So that's about as far as we're going to get tonight, but we're going to get over into the Antichrist. In verse number 8, when Daniel was looking at these horns, and behold, there came up among them another little horn, before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in his horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. And we'll get into that next time we're together. I do hope that you've enjoyed our study, and um, I look forward to being with you guys Sunday morning as we get, we continue our study through the book of Acts. And I'm still putting together another topical study that we'll go about through the week. Um, it's been talked about possibly looking a little closer at the Lord's table and the and and uh, baptism. Was it the Lord's table and baptism? So I'm still praying about that. Still praying about how to put that together. Be praying for me as I hit the road this Saturday morning. I'll be at Calvary Christian Fellowship in Kingwood, Texas, preaching 
uh, please pray for me. And if you're in that area, I sure would love to see you. All that information is on my Facebook page. God bless you guys. Remember that God loves you, wants the best for you. He's working all things out for your good.